I want to pass out something to you today. In fact, I had somebody ask me about it today, not knowing that I was going to pass it out. This is nothing new. I've passed it out to you in previous years, but it has to do with what today is. Of course, today's Wednesday. But what else about today? Ash Wednesday. Ash, Ash Wednesday. And what in the world does that mean? Okay? It's going to stuff And as pass those around. And, uh, you know, and I want to talk about that for a moment. Because in, in Baptist life, this is not something we hear much about, but in the wider Christian community around the world, we do hear more about it. Okay? So, uh, obviously, it is a part of a, a broader thing called Lent. Okay? So you're getting the handout on that tonight. And this, this is not the Bible study. I just want to... I just want to go over this quickly before we get into the Bible study. I hope everyone will get one. At our house, it means supper's almost ready. It means supper's almost ready? Okay. <laughs> it, it's just one sheet in the front and back. Does everybody have one? We don't. Everybody got one? Dave, right here. Everybody over here got one? And everybody over here now? Got one? We don't have one, but we got one at home, I'm sure. Well, but we got one. Okay, does everybody have one now? Everybody got one? Uh, because we do have a good bit to go over tonight, let's get started on this. I just, I just want you to understand when you... When you see in the news or you see on TV or you hear Lynn and Ash Wednesday and so forth talked about, I want you to understand what it is. Uh, let's just read over this. Lent from the German, Lent refers to spring. The root from which it derives uh, has to do with lengthen, hence Lent refers to the lengthening of days in the spring. Lent is observed for 40 days leading up to Easter in remembrance of Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. Sundays are generally not counted, which are like many Easter's each week celebrating the resurrection. That's why if you start with Ash Wednesday, counting 40 days up to Easter, it won't work right unless you ignore the Sundays. Also, it should be noted that there are some differences in how the church in the West and the Eastern Orthodox Church celebrate Lent. In the West, Ash Wednesday is the start of Lent. On Ash Wednesday, participants put a smudge of ashes on their foreheads, symbolizing sorrow for sin. Often in the Old Testament, people would cover themselves in sackcloth and ashes as a sign of repentance and sorrow over sin. When we studied Jonah recently, even among the pagan Ninevites, what did the king have everybody to do? Cover themselves in sackcloth and ashes. The purpose of Ash Wednesday and Lent in most church traditions is to get people thinking about sin and to be humbled over it and repentant. 
It is to assist the worshiper as he or she leads up to Easter. We are reminded of our sin being the reason for the death of Christ. During Lent, the penitential psalms are often read. These psalms deal with sorrow and repentance for sin. Psalm 51 is perhaps the best known of the penitential psalms. The others would be Psalm 6, Psalm 32, 38, 102, 130, and 143. Three practices emphasized during Lent which are supposed to be increased are prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Almsgiving was a way to add something positive to the fast. In other words, don't only give up something, but add something good. Sometimes people today will give up a vice and give that money instead to a charitable organization or they will volunteer at a homeless shelter, for example. Fat Tuesday, uh, in, in the French language, Mardi Gras, was a last chance party and feast before Ash Wednesday began. It was a time when many would eat pancakes because pancakes were a chance to get rid of butter, eggs, and milk as well as any other dairy products. Now, why have Baptists, Reformed churches, and many evangelical groups typically not observed Lent? Baptists believe in the autonomy of the local church and reject a centralized official church authority mandating a practice. In other words, each local body of believers sets its policies and traditions and practices. Baptists have emphasized the priesthood of the individual believers, shying away from mandated or strongly encouraged corporate practices that are not clearly outlined in the Scripture. For Baptists, this point to suggest the Bible is our guide for faith and practice, while remorse for sin that leads to repentance is certainly a biblical principle as is fasting. Nowhere in the New Testament do we find Lent or Ash Wednesday being promoted. Some of the practices that have been associated with Lent, such as food groups of what you can and cannot eat on certain days, become so restrictive without any scriptural merit. In fact, Colossians 2 cautions against those who put such restrictions on certain foods and days. Baptists and other evangelicals believe that repentance over sin is to be an ongoing practice of the Christian and not simply emphasized during a 40-day period. During Lent, many professing Christians will give up something. They will fast from something they like, such as ice cream, chocolate, chewing gum, or red meat. This tends to make it rather trite or making little of it. It's hard to see how giving up ice cream or chewing gum is denying yourself and carrying your cross in the New Testament sense of those terms. We don't believe that laying off your juicy fruit is exactly what Jesus had in mind by denying yourself. In Matthew 6, Jesus cautioned against doing our acts of righteousness before others to be seen by men. If we're walking around with ashes on our forehead or advertising that we can't eat certain foods during Lent, it would appear to be dangerously close to what Jesus was forbidding. Reformers like Zwingli came out in strong opposition to Lent, distancing himself and other reformers from many of the traditions of sacramentalists. To them, such things as the practice of Lent seem to emphasize meritorious acts versus the faith alone principle of the Reformation. Should a believer today take part in Lent, if done in the right spirit, privately before God, and truly using the season to focus in on sin and the need for repentance, 
and the necessity of the cross, there's nothing wrong or sinful about observing the practice yourself. Some Christians find certain observances on the Christian calendar to be aids in worship, much like an order of worship in a Sunday church bulletin would be. However, to Zwingli's point, observances like Lent should in no way make the worshiper believe there's anything saving or meriting of salvation in the practice. As Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So I just wanted you to have that as a resource. Like I say, you may have a copy of that at home. I've given that out to you before. But I thought with this being Ash Wednesday, it's a good chance to just remind ourselves why much of the Christian world does observe Ash Wednesday and Lent. And that brings up a question that I want to begin with tonight. Is there anything wrong with having certain days on the church calendar? Days like Christmas or Easter or today, Ash Wednesday. Is there anything wrong with it? Is there any value in it? No and no. Any value in things like Christmas, Easter? Okay. Chance to tell others what it's about. What would maybe be another benefit? of having certain days on the church calendar that we, we I think, recognize. I think it reminds you of some historical things that happened in the in the, what was going on religiously at certain times. Right. You know, coming over from the Methodist church almost two years ago now. Right. I mean, we celebrated all of these things. Sure, sure. And so it was quite a switch for me. Like I would go home at night and I'd Christmas force us as believers to think about the birth of Christ, the incarnation that God is with us. Uh, maybe if we didn't have a season of the year and a day on the calendar where we celebrate that and recognize it, some people might not think about it. Uh, Easter having the day, Easter Sunday. What's that get us thinking about in a renewed way? Resurrection. The resurrection. Good Friday, the crucifixion of Jesus. Easter Sunday, the resurrection. So in that sense, 
having those days can have value to it. Because we think about the scriptural meaning behind that day, right? It could mean a bridge for discussion to other people. Very good point. Could be a bridge for discussion with unbelievers. When you say, does something have value, though, mm -hmm. does it have value in bringing you to heaven? No. Or does it have value in helping you bring others? Right. There? Right. So to say, no, there's nothing wrong with it, but mm -hmm. no, it has no value. It has no value in your Christianity. And see, that's a great point, too, based on passages like Isaiah 1 and Jeremiah chapter 7. The temple sermon in Jeremiah 7 and then in, in Isaiah 1. Because what is God condemning in those passages? They had certain days, solemn assemblies and certain days and feasts that they were recognizing that they thought by celebrating that day or that festival in and of itself, they thought it connected them to God, made them right with God. And so they would go to the temple and celebrate those certain days or festivals thinking they were okay with God and then leave the temple and go back to a sinful way of life. But they had been to church and cashed in their chips, so to speak, you know, and got their free pass until that day or festival came around again next, next year. And so in that sense, believing that it makes you right with God in some way, the, the scripture says absolutely not. It has no value in that regard. But again, things that... God gave them certain festivals and days to recognize in the Old Testament, like Passover, for instance, so they could remember constantly what God had done for them, delivering them out of Egypt. So in that regard, you can, if you're talking to a Christian that celebrates Ash Wednesday, uh, if, if it's truly being used in the sense of beginning a 40-day period where you reflect on your sin and Christ's sacrifice for your sin. It's, it can be a worship tool in your private devotions or in your corporate church life. Getting your heart ready for the Easter season. So in that sense... A day like Ash Wednesday reminding us of our sin and reminding us of our need of confession. Some, some people find great value in that. And so I want us to read tonight a text, as I was thinking about this, a text of Scripture that has to do with preparation for spiritual renewal. And by spiritual renewal, what I'm aiming at as we lead up to Easter this spring, as we lead up to Easter this spring, I hope in your own Christian walk, this 40-day period will be used as a time of reflection and renewal. Uh, so let's read James chapter 4 and some attitudes that you and I need to have 
as we prepare our hearts to, to have our faith renewed. James says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges them. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So let's think in terms of this passage as we think in terms of this next 40 days and preparing our hearts for the Easter season. I read an illustration one time about uh, an older couple following in behind a young couple in their car. Back in the days when seatbelt laws were not in force. And the young, younger couple in front of them, the young lady was sitting up under the young man's armpit. And the older couple behind, the lady looked over at her husband and she said, you know, we used to be like that. <laughs> well, he looked over at her and said, I ain't moved. <laughs> uh, that story reminds us, relationships can change. They can grow cold. They need maintenance. Well, the same is true in our relationship with God. You know, Jeremiah 2 is a perfect illustration of how things can change, right? You remember what God said through the prophet Jeremiah? Said, I rem he said, I remember the devotion of your youth. When I had led you out of Egypt into the wilderness and how you loved me and followed me. He went on to say, what fault have you found in me? My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they dug out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God's saying to the people there, what happened? I remember earlier days of your devotion. And you're not devoted to me anymore. You've grown cold. You know, we ought to be consciously and constantly drawing near to God on a daily basis. Not being like the little boy who was starting school and he, when he came home, his mom asked him, how was school today? It's a new experience for you. How'd you like it? He said, it's okay, but you know, it's not something I want to do every day. <laughs> <laughs> Well, James 4 is talking about things that we do need to do every day. 
and the maintenance, the constant attention to our spiritual lives. You know, if we do what James is speaking of here, it's going to make a difference in your Christian walk. And what we see here, there's some worthy pursuits and some not-so-worthy pursuits. There's some things we're to love and some things we're to hate or things we're to shun. And so what's he talk about first? Christian loving. A Christian must love the right things. Listen to what he says about that. Verse 7, he, he points out that we need to submit ourselves to God. Verse 7, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. It's a command. And at the same time, it's in the passive. And so he's indicating something here that the believer must take some responsibility for themselves that they must do. Who's going to be in charge of your life? Have you settled that question? I hope you have. I hope, like Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, in light of God's mercies, you're presenting yourself as a living sacrifice daily to God. Remember who we're submitting to. We're submitting to sovereign, holy God. And certainly, He knows what's best for us. He's not going to ask something or expect something of us that is going to be detrimental to us. He knows best. And so we need to constantly submit ourselves to Him. And the word submit was a, was a military term, sometimes used in ancient times, military phrase, and it talked about putting yourself in, keeping yourself in according to your proper rank. In other words, he's God, we're not. You know, when a private acts like a general, then there's going to be trouble, right? We're just privates. God's the general. The idea here is one of unconditional surrender. No strings attached. We submit ourselves to God without any reservation, without any conditions, without any strings attached. Is that the way you're submitting your life to God? Or are you putting conditions on it? Are you withholding anything from God? Is there any, any sin that you've not submitted to Him for cleansing? Any sin that you're refusing to repent of? If there is, that'll be a barrier. The challenge of submission is that it means that we've got to die to ourselves. We've got to die daily. And you know, that's against the sinful nature, isn't it? But listen to what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Think of that. Think of those words. I'm crucified. I no longer live. Yeah, I'm alive, but it's Christ who lives through me. And so there's got to be constant 
submission. And then he also mentions drawing near to God. Look at verse 8. I put verse 7 up there, but verse 8. Come near to God or draw near to God and he'll come near to you. Now there's both a precept and a promise in that verse. What's the precept? Draw near to God. That's Old Testament language for when the high priest would go into the holy of holies, go into God's presence. Now, we can do that today because of Christ. We don't need a, an earthly high priest. Jesus is our high priest. And the book of Hebrews reminds us that when he died on the cross, that veil was split from top to bottom. Signifying what? That through Christ, he's opening the way up for every believer to go into the presence of God, to go into the Holy of Holies. Because of what Christ did on the cross, you and I can draw near to God. He makes it possible. And his promise is, the, the promise to the precept is what? He'll draw near to you. Well, that's a great promise in the Bible, isn't it? You know, this verse right here reinforces what J. Oswald Sanders, a Christian writer, said on one occasion. He said, you are as close to God right now as you want to be. You and I need to draw near to God. Wherever you are in your relationship to God, use this season as we're approaching Easter to take a step towards God. Remember the prodigal son? When he came to his senses and said, I'll go back to my father, he, stepped, he went back home. And what did he find the father doing? Amen. Running to meet him. Proverbs 8, 17. Write that down. It says... I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently will find me. And then Jeremiah 29, 13. Jeremiah 20, 29, 13 says, And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. God can be found. You and I need to draw near to him. Well, we also need to humble ourselves before God. Look at verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. Now, I want you to look back a minute in connection with this thought to verse 6. Verse 6, he's quoting from Proverbs 3, 34. It says in verse 6, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. What a profound statement there. God opposes the proud. Your translation may say, but gives grace to the humble. Do you remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4? You remember that story? When he was still an unbeliever, he walked out on his terrace one night of his palace and he looked out over the horizon and over the Babylonian kingdom and he was filled with pride. 
And he said, look at what I have built by my wisdom and my power. Now what's the scriptures like? At that moment, God stripped it all away from him. And then after that experience, he went through that horrible experience. Finally, at the end of that experience, he humbled himself before God. And God restored him. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think Nebuchadnezzar and his experience is a perfect illustration of that biblical truth. Human pride is at the root of sin. We want to be self-sufficient. We want to be the captain of our own ship. We want to be like God. We want to make our own decisions. We want to be independent, right? And that goes all the way back to the garden. Now, why would we want to adopt an attitude, though, that God opposes? And why would we want to ignore an attitude that pours God's grace out towards us. I think of the Pharisee and the publican in Luke 18. The Pharisee beat on his breast. Excuse me. Publican did that. But the Pharisee looked over at the publican and in his prayer said, God, I thank you that I'm not like him. He's an old pagan. But God, I do this, I do this, I do that, I do this. God, you ought to love me. You ought to be glad I'm on your team. And the Bible says the publican beat on his breast wouldn't even look up to heaven and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the scripture says he's the one that went home justified. God opposes the proud gives grace to the humble. There's a story about an artist who painted a beautiful portrait of Jesus and put it in a, I think it was a European cathedral. But it was very difficult to see. People would go in there and there was, there was a secret to seeing the portrait of Jesus. A man walked in one time, the artist was there, and he said, I don't see Jesus. And the artist said, You've got to come closer and get lower. The man said, I still don't see him. Come closer and get lower. I don't see him. Come closer and get lower. And finally, when he got close enough and low enough, he said, I see him. I see him. And that was the whole point the artist had tried to make in that portrait that he drew. You had to get close and low, symbolizing humility before you can see Jesus. Well, let's move on and talk about Christian loathing. There's certain things that a Christian must hate. You know, we we always think that all we're supposed to do is love. Well, there's some things we need to hate. We need to hate things that would wreck our lives. We need to hate things that will not last. That's why John says, love not the world or the things of the world. If you love the world, the things of the, love, of the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And the world and all that's in the world is passing away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. 
And Jesus also said, you even have to hate your own life. Hate being used in comparison to how you love him. Jesus said, you've got to hate your own life. You've got to hate mother, father, brother, sister, wife, husband, even your own life if you want to follow me and be my disciple. So what is it that we need to love? And how do we need to act in regard to this? Well, look at what he says in verse 7. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. The word resist here refers to an all-out opposition to Satan. An all-out opposition to him. No holds barred resistance to the devil and anything that he would have you do. You've got to oppose him. You've got to stand against him. There's an all-out warfare in the believer's life against the evil one. And sometimes we, we live like we don't realize we're in spiritual warfare. I've told you before, we act like, too often times we act like we're on a cruise ship instead of a battleship. Bible says we're at war with the devil, the flesh, and the world. Our flesh, because we want what brings personal comfort, whether it's godly or not. The world, we, we tend to treasure things that are in the world. And then Satan, he's the destroyer of our souls. And so we're to resist him. We're not even to give him an inch of our life. Because we need to remember he's a liar and the father of lies. In Genesis chapter 3, he wanted to paint God out as being stingy. God wasn't stingy. God had said, look at all this I've given. There's one tree you can't eat from. And the devil came along and tried to paint God out as being stingy. God's keeping something from you that you need. We're to give him no opportunity. And that's where Eve went wrong. No wonder Paul said in Ephesians 4.27, you may want to write that verse down too, Ephesians 4.27, neither give place to the devil. Neither give place to the devil. Now I want you to notice where this commandment falls. When he says there in verse 7, resist the devil. Notice the order in the verse. If we're to make anything of the order, what's it say? First we're to do what? Submit to God and then resist the devil. You know what people have said about that? After you submit to God or after there's a spiritual high point in your life, guess who you run into so oftentimes? The devil. The devil. I mean, think of Jesus in the wilderness right after his baptism, right after the voice of God from heaven and the Spirit has led him out into the wilderness. Who was out there waiting? The devil. It's going to be the same with us. As long as you're walking in the same direction as the devil, you're not going to meet him. Or you're not going to notice him. But the minute you do a 180 and turn away and turn to God, who are you going to bump head on into? The devil. How do you resist the devil? Same way Jesus did in the wilderness. 
through Scripture. You know, Jesus, Jesus could have zapped Satan when he's out in the wilderness. But you know, had he defeated the devil that way, you and I couldn't relate to that, could we? Have you ever stopped to think about that? Jesus, by the way Jesus defeated Satan, he was establishing a pattern of how you and I can. He didn't just zap him. He used the scripture. Again, setting a pattern of how you and I can resist the evil one and gain victory over it. Then James also says here, cleanse your hands. Look at verse 8 again. Wash your hands, you sinners. You know, sin and fellowship with God don't mix. The relationship will still be intact, but the fellowship will be gone. Now, what's the image of washing the hands go back to here? There's a lot of Jewish background, Old Testament background in the book of James. What do you think washing the hands goes back to? The priest before they come and Exactly. The laver in the temple. Exodus 30. Before the priest could go in and stand before the Lord and be in God's presence, he had to wash his hands at the laver of bronze. And that was an outer picture of the inward cleansing. Psalm 32 records David's life before and after he was forgiven. In Psalm 32, he says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My, vi my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Sin had ruined David's life. It, it had <laughs> caused his life to dry up, so to speak. You know, there's, there's people in churches even today who are miserable. One of the reasons they're miserable might be because of sin. Sin's not brought them pleasure they thought it would. And so what do they need to do? Cleanse their hands. Again, take action. Be washed. Repent. Cleansing the hands is a sign of being clean in the sight of God. Well, not only clean hands, but what's James going to say here? Purify your hearts. If the hands in need of cleansing stand for our sins, I think this phrase refers to the heart condition that leads to the bad actions on the outside. So he says, purify your hearts. And, and the inward sin that James goes on to describe here is double-mindedness. They're, they're being double-minded. How does James know that? He knows his flock. He's watched them. 
He's watched the way they want the world and they want God to. They pray, but they pray for the wrong things that they can consume it upon their lust. They fuss and argue with one another because of jealousy. They're self-centered. And the way they use their tongue. James has seen all this. And yet, they're in church. And so what's James talking about here? A picture of inconsistency. They're double-minded. They're double-minded. And so they need to purify their hearts. Their heart needs to get right with God. And then notice what he says here. Mourn and weep. Look at verse 9. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, if the cleansing images that James has just given bring to mind the priest as they would go to the temple, Douglas Moo in his commentary on James, he's he's one of the very best commentators on the book of James. Uh, Douglas Moo says that the mourning and weeping image calls to mind the prophets in the Old Testament. Again, if the cleansing brought to mind the priest, this calls to mind the prophets. The prophets would call on the people to cry and mourn and put on sackcloth and weep over their sin. Now, folks, James is not against laughter. You know, the Bible says that a merry heart is like what? Good medicine. And there's a time for laughter. Every time you put an offering into the church. You can do so with laughter in your heart. Why? Because the scripture says God loves a cheerful giver. So there's a place for laughter. But there's a place for crying too. And you and I need to understand the Jewish context here. In their context, laughter was oftentimes the characteristic of what? The ungodly, when they would get together to have their parties, they're laughing, their parties, they're drinking, they're cavorting around, and a lot of times they would laugh and mock over sin, make light of sin, and mock and laugh over God. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon speaks of a time to weep. Ecclesiastes says it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of laughter. What Solomon's speaking of there, it's it's better to go to a place where people are weeping over their sin, where they're getting right with God, as opposed to simply going to a party where people are laughing and having fun all the time. Remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He's talking there about mourning over sin. Now I want you to think about the image here. Here's a guy laughing and partying his way all the way to hell. Okay? He's just out to have a good time in life. 
But on the other hand, here's a guy that all of a sudden comes under conviction about the direction of his life. He leaves the party. He goes to the house of the Lord. He throws himself down on the altar. He's brokenhearted. He begins to weep over his sin and his lostness and his need of God. He gets saved. He goes from weeping to laughing. The first guy goes from laughing to weeping. This guy that gets right with God goes from weeping over his sin to joy in his heart and laughter. Which scenario do you want in the long run? The laughter, the joy for eternity, right? That's why Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And, and even though we've, we've looked at verse 10, look at where it ends up. Look at verse 10 again. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will do what? Lift you up. So such humility results or ends up in what? Exaltation. If you exalt self and sin, God will humble you one day. But if you humble yourself before God and repent of your sin, weep over your sin, then God will exalt you. He's pointing out reversals here. And then notice he also includes in, in talking about how we're to love God, submit to Him, how we're to hate the devil. Notice what he he turns to do now something very practical in corporate life of the church. He addresses Christian language. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them, speaks against the law, judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let me just mention something briefly here, how James is cautioning us as we're talking about our spiritual life, our relationship with people matter. I had a friend one time in college tell me, and you tell me if this is a true or, or a false statement. He said, just so long as I am right with God, my relationship with people doesn't matter at all. That's false, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The get right with the vertical and it's going to impact the horizontal, right? And a lot of times the horizontal where, where there's wrong being displayed has to do with the way we, we speak about our brothers and sisters. Well, Notice how he says here, anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them. Uh, the Bible is not, and he goes on here to talk against judging, but the Bible is not contradicting itself. In the epistles of the New Testament, we're often told to judge sin. The Corinthians, for example, were severely called out. Uh, by the Apostle Paul because they wouldn't judge a brother caught in immorality. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, the church is warned to judge themselves 
before coming to the Lord's table and taking part in the Lord's Supper. Then also in 1 John 4, we're told to judge what we hear and we're to judge the spirits because there are already many antichrists in the world. But James is warning us against what Jesus warned of in the Sermon on the Mount. We had better not be judgmental where we don't know the facts. It's one thing when we make judgments against things that are wrong and we deal with wrongdoing and sin, but it's another thing altogether when we're filled with gossip, backbiting, and judgmental attitudes. So sometimes the Bible tells us to judge. Sometimes it tells us to judge not. It's the context, what's being addressed that, that dictates. Chuck Swindoll one time gave, gave a great illustration of judging a brother for not knowing facts. He, he talks about back in his seminary days when he was in the classroom as a student. And he was actually one of the student body officers and they had invited a well-known very highly respected missionary speaker to come and make a presentation one night. And this was a guy that people just raved over hearing. And so the guy came, made his presentation. The student body, Chuck Swindoll included, was horribly disappointed. In fact, they said his, his presentation that day was simply horrible. I mean, they wondered about this guy. Just simply horrible. And Swindoll says afterwards, after the meeting broke up and the students are standing around talking, people really started talking against the guy's presentation. And some students even started just mocking him and making fun of him and saying very unkind things. Seminary students talking about the speaker they just heard. And Swindoll said, to all of our shame, we were all part of it. Talking about just what a terrible job it was. He said, all of a sudden, somebody stormed in the middle of us and said, how dare you? And Chuck Swindoll said, this guy looked at him and said, how dare you? You're one of our student body leaders. He said, let me tell you what happened to this guy right before he walked in here tonight to speak. His wife called him on the phone to tell him that their son had just been murdered. And this guy chose to come in and speak to you students regardless before he jumped in his car and ran home. And then Chuck Swindoll said, you know, they all felt about yay talk. James says, when you speak evil of a brother, you put yourself in the place of God and God's law. You've essentially said, God, move over. I'm taking your seat. But you can't occupy that seat because you don't have all wisdom and all knowledge. And so again, he's, he's talking here, including here, about our treatment of our brothers and sisters and what we say about them. He's including that as being very important in our vertical relationship to God. 
and how we need to spiritually prepare our hearts before God. That what we say and speak of others and how we treat others matters. Matters in our spiritual walk. You know, I wonder tonight as we're 40 days out from Easter, uh, if there's some renewal that needs to take place in your life and there's no magic formula to it, no magic formula, getting along with God, getting on your knees before God, getting in His Word, examining your own life, what you need to turn away from, what you need to repent of, what you need to renew as far as your love. Maybe there's an area where you realize you've given the devil a foothold in your life. You know, you've given him an inch and he'll take a mile, as the old saying goes. Maybe there's some areas of your life that you need to examine how, how you've given the devil a foothold. Maybe you need to look tonight at your treatment of your brothers and sisters and your, your language, your attitudes towards people. Uh, spiritual disciplines and devotion that you and I need to put into practice. And again, there's nothing necessarily <coughs> special about today or this 40 days any more than any other time. Again, just using this time leading up to Easter just as a reminder of how we need to pause. We need to pause and reflect. I don't know why it's doing that. I have no idea why it's doing that. But I have no idea what's going on with this. But anyway, uh, this time leading up to Easter, just let it be kind of a checkpoint in your spiritual life that you give your attention to your sin and why Christ came and why He died and the life that He now gives you through His life. Any comments or questions in closing? Pastor, I, mm -hmm. I have a confession I need to make and prayer for myself. Okay. Um, I have two sisters. Gail, you know about this. I've mentioned her before. Right. I have a younger sister named Rita. We have been, I guess you could call separated, for many, many years now. And I can't even remember what caused it to start with. Mm. Um, but I have not been in touch with her in, like I said, many, many years. Mm. Um, the only information I ever get about her is through my sister, Gail. Um, and she got me to think it over. Actually, I think God started putting it on my heart. I needed to correct that. Mm -hmm. um, well, Sunday, um, Rita called me, and we had a nice talk. And I'm hoping that that will be the catalyst that that brings us back together again. She doesn't live that far from me, actually. I think she lives in Greenville, or Greensboro. One. But it's, it started weighing heavy, because like I said, it's been so many years ago that we separated, our house separated. So I, I need prayer, guys, just to get me back on the right track with, with her. And think of how God arranged all that. That you had, 
you have started being real heavy in your heart about that situation. And then she calls. Things like that are not a coincidence. You know? yeah. You're right. We need to pray for you that that relationship will be restored. Okay. Any other comments? Okay. Well, Dave Phillips, would you get us started tonight in our prayer time before we close? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we have such great opportunity as Christians, as believers, to share one with another. We're thankful, Lord, for the horizontal relationships that you provide for us through the local church. We're thankful for each person who is here tonight. We thank, Lord, of the prayer requests that have been exchanged here earlier this evening. Thank, Lord, of Don Nixon coming home from rehab. Others, Lord, who have been struggling and who are in the hospital and who can't have visitors, we'd ask you, Lord, to bring comfort, to extend your grace and your mercy to these folks, even as they go through physical trials. We're mindful that you give to us the opportunities to, to worship, to gather together as we have tonight. And we ask you, Lord, to be especially close to our church family. We're grateful, God, that we have a, a vertical relationship with our Heavenly Father. And we're, we're just so grateful that through the instrument of the cross and through your, your death, your burial, your resurrection, you've provided eternity for us, heaven. And Father, we, we ask you to help us to appreciate that. And in that appreciation, to both give you worship and glory and honor, but also, Lord, to do it in such a way that people around us would recognize Jesus Christ being lived out in our lives. God, we're mindful we don't always get it right. So we ask for your forgiveness where that's necessary. We ask you, Lord, to be close to us, to draw us close to you. And even as James is admonished, help us, Lord, to be a, a Christian fellowship that's reaching out to a community that's lost and dying. Blessed we pray as only you can, in Jesus' name. Any others? Maybe one of the names or situations on the board that you're drawn to pray for. Lord, we do reflect 
on our sin, the magnitude of our sin, and it makes us so grateful that, Lord, You sent Your Son to bear our sin on the cross. That He died as the propitiation for our sin, as Romans 3.25 says. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He bore our sin that we might receive His righteousness. Lord, I pray that we would not be careless with our lives. We would not be careless with our walk. That we would be mindful of our relationship with you and also our being mindful of our relationship with others because the two are connected. Lord, I pray that this season leading up to Easter that in each of our hearts there would be a spiritual renewal. That daily we would be renewing our devotion and preparing our hearts for what we celebrate at this time of the year. Lord, I pray that if there are areas where folks have cracked open the door to the evil one, that that door would be shut that we wouldn't give the devil opportunity. Lord, most of us know um, spiritual disciplines that we need to embrace more and we know of habits we need to break. And so I pray, God, that we'd be very transparent and honest before you in that regard. And Lord, there are folks that we've written down on the board tonight, their names and needs, and you know each need. We want to pray in particular tonight for Susan Ressler. Lord, she's had a year now of her life being in such a delicate balance with her lung condition. And I pray that you would give her doctors wisdom from above to know how to treat her. We thank you for our earthly doctors, but Lord, you're the, you're the great physician. So I pray that you would guide her doctors, that they'll know what to do and when and how. Lord, I pray for Alan during this time. I know Alan and the children are concerned about her. And I just pray that once again, you would bring her through this. Lord, for Helen Andrews, who... It would certainly appear that any day now she will be in your presence. I thank you that she knows that she's saved and at peace with you. And God, we pray that when her time does come, you would take her quickly and that her suffering would, would end. Lord, we pray for this lady that uh, her son has died of COVID and a funeral tomorrow. I've heard parents speak of how burying a child, you, you never get over that. Lord, you're the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And you're the God of all comfort who comforts us in the midst of all of our afflictions. We pray that you would stand by Roseanne and give her strength beyond anything she possesses on her own. Lord, for the surgeries coming up, 
We pray for full recovery of these folks and the ones who have just experienced surgery. That very soon they would be well enough to be back with their church family and with their own family. Lord, we love you. And I pray that as we leave here tonight, that for the remainder of the week, that our eyes and ears would be open to the divine appointments and opportunities you give us to be a witness for you. May we be faithful in that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.